Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 38, so turn in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 38. If you have a copy of the scripture from the stands on the back, it's on page 32. Today we are going to be reading from Genesis 38 a sad and sordid account of, it's, a, it's really an interlude in the story of Joseph, but an account of um, sin that is, uh, as I said, sad and sordid. And we will see, though, ultimately how God is able to use that uh, in his grand purposes, and he will use that in his grand purposes and plan. And in fact, as we have just seen, seen, uh, sung, we will, if we see the big picture, understand how grace is greater than all of our sin. A little background is there is such a thing in that particular culture called the uh, Leverite marriage. If a man died childless, the next of kin had the duty to take the widow as a wife and raise up a family bearing the man's, na uh, bearing the man's name, the dead man's name, so that his line would not lose their inheritance. And evidently, uh, as we read this passage, you will see that Onan wanted the inheritance for himself and did not want it for his older brother. So that's a little bit of background. Genesis chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went, and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enaim, 
which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Selah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face and he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend to the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Inaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shalah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out his hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, and the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. And Perez becomes part of the line of Christ. This is the infallible word of God. And now we know why I've called the series The Maker in the Mess. 
right? This is a messy chapter with a lot of sin. But you know what? When the Bible uh, confronts our Victorian prudishness and gives us a real story with real sinners and real sin, that is intended to give all of us real hope. Because if God can work and does work and continues to work in messy, sinful, difficult situations like this, what's going to stop him from working in the life of any sinner or sinful person or sinful situation? And so that's the encouragement we get from reading and thinking through this morning, Genesis chapter 38. You may be wondering, why, why Genesis 38? I mean, we're, we're in a series of sermons uh, on the life of Joseph. And I don't know if you were paying attention, as I was, as we read through Genesis 38, but Joseph isn't there, right? He's not even mentioned. And so, so oftentimes, and it's, it's fine to do this, but oftentimes in sermon series or lessons through the life of Joseph, we'll, some people will skip over 38 because there's not, there's not really any, any reason to address it because Joseph's not mentioned. However, I think that we do a disservice when we do that because we miss something critical that Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to teach us about the life of Joseph. Joseph is a secondary player. He's a supporting actor in this story. He is not the main character. Now, he's featured the most, but he's not the main point. Ironically, as we get closer to the end of this story in Genesis chapter 49 and 50, we'll see actually that Judah, Judah is the main character. Because Judah is the line through which the Messiah is going to continue. Joseph's older brother, not Joseph. It's not going to be Joseph and his family through which the Messiah is going to come, but rather it's going to be Judah and his family. So Genesis 37 through 50 then is not so much the story of Joseph, although it is, but it's mainly the story of the preservation of the line of Judah and Joseph accomplishing under God's providence and according to his sovereignty the means through which the line of judah continues so given the contours of genesis so far we wouldn't expect a chapter like genesis 38 because in genesis 37 we see this dramatic scene in which joseph is sold into slavery and we wonder what in the world's going to happen and then all of a sudden like any good storyteller will do like any good movie you ever been in the movie where there's just like it's like an oncoming train's getting ready to happen, and all, there's, it's full of action. The soundtrack's going fast, and all of a sudden, it just turns a moment. Meanwhile, back at the homestead, and you're like, wait, there was an oncoming train there. Why all of a sudden did we switch scenes and go back here? I want to find out what happened to, to that guy. Well, that's what Moses does here. He does this. He's taking us back now. He's taking us on a different track, a parallel track. Another story that's coinciding with the Joseph story, namely this story with Judah and his family, but it's intended to fill out and round out the details. As I already mentioned, at the end of his life, Jacob blesses his children in Genesis 49 concerning the last days. And when he blesses his children, and we'll get to this in, in several weeks when we get to the end of the story, and that's where Jacob begin, identifies the royal line that's going to be passed down as the line belonging to his son Judah. He says in Genesis 49, verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
So knowing that's where we're going, now we understand, I think, in part, why Genesis 38 is where it is. Why Judah is dealt with here. And in part, as we're going to see in Genesis 39, this chapter serves to set up a big contrast between Joseph and Judah. Right? Because in chapter 38, we see Judah in all manner of sexual sin. And in chapter 39, we see Joseph in all manner of avoiding sexual sin. So it's, it's intended to contrast the character of these two brothers. So three points this morning as we walk through Genesis 38, and here's the first one. Number one, Judah's journey. Judah's journey. We're going to look at the first 12 verses here and just chart Judah's journey because he is on a journey according to verse 1. See what it says there? It happened at that time. That is, it's right after his brothers sold him into sold Joseph into Egyptian slavery, that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside, there's a key word, key phrase, turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So three things I want us to notice first about Judah's journey here. First, I want you to notice who he's chosen as his friends. Think about his friend here. See this in verse 1? Judah leaves the company of God's people, and he journeys into a foreign land, the land of the Canaanites, which was an idolatrous pagan land. So the phrase that Moses chooses to use to describe what Judah is doing is that he turned aside. He forsook. He's walking away from the Lord and his family and all of his ways. We don't know why. We're not told why he does it. I mean, you can imagine that part of the reason has to be the guilt that's racking his conscience right now. The fact that he's sold his brother into slavery, he's deceived his dad, and you just got to think, how can the guy sleep at night? Now, we knew from last week that these brothers had pretty seared consciences. Not a lot bothered them. They were able to eat right after throwing their brother in the pit. They could lie bold-faced right to their dad with no shame and keep that deception up for two decades. I mean, these weren't men who were easily conscience-stricken. But nevertheless, Judah chooses to depart and turn aside and become friends with a Canaanite and a Dulamite named Hira. Now, what's the significance of that? Look at verse 12. We see Hira's name mentioned a couple more times in this chapter. In verse 12, it says, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. He and his friend, his friend, Hira, the Adulamite. And then again in verse 20, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take the pledge. So this is a friend. This is a close companion. And I want you to see the significance of this, especially those of us maybe in our congregation this morning who are younger. So kids, listen up. I've got an, I've got an application for you all, especially younger children. Friendship, who you are close to in terms of friends will in large measure determine who you become, what kind of person you will become. Now, I don't mean that you shouldn't be nice to everybody. You should be nice to everybody. You should say hi to people. You should, you should be nice and kind, but you need to be careful who you make to be your closest friends. You need to look around you because friendships are chosen. Friendships are intentional. And so you need to be careful who you choose to surround yourself with. 
who you choose to have closest conversation with, who you choose to bear your heart with, who you choose to walk through life with, who you choose, you get the point. Those friendships will shape your character, will shape the way you think, will shape the way you live, and will shape ultimately what God you choose to serve. That's what we see here in the life of Judah. So be careful, kids, in choosing your closest friendships. Make sure you are proactive in choosing the ones that as you look at those friends, you see characteristics of godliness and Christ-likeness and a desire to serve the Lord. Because if you don't, you will follow in their footsteps and you will be pulled away. And that's what we see here with Judah. His choice of friendship impacts literally the rest of this chapter in his behavior. Second, I want you to see his family, what happens as a result. Look at chapter, uh, chapter 38, verse 2. Then Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. So what does he do? He marries a Canaanite woman. That's clearly not what God told his people to do. This is a form of being what the New Testament calls unequally yoked. It's a true follower, or at least a, a, a follower of the true God versus a follower of a false God, and they're uniting together. And then verses 3 through 5 lay out the three, three sons that they have, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. So Judah has his family here, and it's as a result of him going into Canaan, and marrying a Canaanite woman, and bringing up children with her. Now let's begin to look thirdly. We looked at friends, we looked at family. I want you to see failure. Look at all the failure that comes out of this family and Judah's decisions. First of all, Judah's a pretty derelict father. He's a pretty derelict father. You notice this in the end of verse 5. Judah was in Chizib. When she bore him, he wasn't even around for the birth of his third son. And notice Ur's behavior, his firstborn son, is not pleasing to the Lord, no doubt in part because of his father's act activity or maybe inactivity. We see in verse 6 Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, her first, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, so she's a Canaanite woman too, like father, like son. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, verse 7, was wicked. In the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And then beginning in verse 8, we read this situation dealing with Onan, which is PG-13. And what's going on is, like Larry explained in his scripture reading, is Onan, since his older brother Ur has died, by the law of God, according to Leveret marriage, the, the second born is to marry the wife of the firstborn son and raise up children for her and Onan doesn't do that in fact he decides not to and as a result God kills him for failure to obey his law and we don't, we're not told exactly why Onan does what he does but we can assume it's selfish and he's probably wanting to keep his share of the inheritance rather than give it to the children of his older brother who is now dead. So now Judah has he's failed as a father. He has two dead sons. And he's looking at a third possible dead son. And we see what he does in response to that in verse 11. Look there. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, 
remain a widow. Remain a widow. What a cruel thing to say when you have a son. Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. Notice, and then now Moses gives a commentary for why he says what he says. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So he sends her away. A widow, he sends away and with the, with the acknowledgement that, hey, I'm going to give you my third-born son eventually. He's just not ready yet, but you'll get him. But you can tell from later, the later part of the chapter that he has no intention of doing that. He doesn't do it. And in fact, when Tamar comes and confronts him about his sin, we'll see exactly how he responds to that. But So he doesn't. He, he avoids it. And he avoids giving Shelah to Tamar because he's afraid that he's going to lose all of his sons. He's going to, all his whole family is going to be dead. And in fact, basically his whole family does die, right? We see at verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter died. So here's Judah, dead wife, two dead sons, a daughter-in-law that's been pushed aside. This is a man who's made a wreck of his life. He's wrecked his life, and it's owing to his own sin. It's owing to his friends. It's owing to his turning aside from the Lord. And it's owing to his own failure. So, brothers and sisters, let Judah serve an example to you. You cannot sin without consequences. You cannot turn aside from God and expect things to be okay. You will have a hard road, self-chosen, because you chose to walk away from God. And that's what Judah experiences. He walks a hard road. He loses children. He loses a wife. He creates all kinds of baby mama drama in his life because of his willing disobedience to what he knew to be true based upon the law of God. So, that's what we see in Judah's journey, and it's a, it's a downward journey. It's slow, steady, downhill. Second point, Tamar's trick. Tamar's trick. That is intended to be a double entendre. Okay? Let's see what Tamar does. And I just want to say something about this. Is that Tamar is a kind of Ruth. Okay, she, it's really easy here to look at Tamar and to throw her under the bus for what she's about to do. And she is sinning here. But you have to understand, why is she doing what she's doing? Why is she behaving this way? Why is she dressing as a prostitute to try to seduce her father-in-law? Because she cares more about the preservation of the line of Judah than Judah does. Now, she's going about it in some really broken ways. But she cares about the preservation of this family through sons than even Judah does. Let's see that in this account. Picking up at verse 13, Judah's just come out of grief over his wife's death. And he's heading up to what would be, in those days, a Canaanite kind of Mardi Gras. Okay? This, this 
when he goes up to Timnah to his sheep shears, this was a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a raucous atmosphere, okay? I mean, you would expect, I mean, it's like, what? It, there, he's going to a, to a sheep shearing convention and there's prostitution available? Like, what's going on here? Well, evidently, this was pretty commonplace. You would see this over and over again. And so Judah knows what he's doing, and he knows where he's going, and he knows what temptations are going to wait him when he gets there. And so Tamar's aware of what happens too and what goes on there, and so she prepares herself to take advantage of this opportunity. And we see what happens. Verse 13, when Tamar was told your father-in-law, Judah, is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, and then she covers herself, and she begins to dress like a prostitute. And it, it, the reason is given at the end of verse 14. You can see that. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, that's Judah's third-born son, and she had not been given to him in marriage. Now, this is Judah's fault. Judah said that he would do this, and Judah's not fulfilling his promise. So she's like, well, he's not going to do it. So let's find a way around this. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she'd covered her face. And then we keep reading. He approaches her. She says, well, if I'm going to do this, you need to give me something. And he says, okay, I'll give you a goat. And he said, well, what kind of pledge do you give that this is actually going to happen after this transaction takes place? And Judah says, okay, here's my Social Security card and my driver's license. That's essentially what his rod and his staff and his signet ring are. It's the identity markers of who he is. That signet ring would have been pressed down into wax and things like that to identify him. And so he's giving her his personal identification. And she knows. She's smart. She's wily. She's savvy. She knows what she's going to do with that. And so she gets a hold of it. And then she obviously... Judah gives them to her, and then in verse 19, then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. So she goes back after the transaction has taken place. So we see Tamar's plan that she's working here, and we see, we see the proposal that takes place, and then we see the pledge that happens as a result. This is getting more and more sordid. This is getting more and more difficult. It's becoming more complex and more complicated. I mean, as you read this chapter, you're just like, Judah, Judah, what are you doing? First of all, disobedience to God's commands has gotten you in the condition that you're in. Your sons are dead. Your wife is dead. Your daughter-in-law has left you. You have one son left. What are you doing? He's like, well, okay. So my daughter, my wife's died, and I'm comforted. What should I do now? Let's, let's go find a prostitute. That would be a good idea. I mean, Judah, he's not, he's not learning. In fact, his sin, and this is, this, is, this is what should shock us. Look back at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, assuming he by God, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. That's awful. That's awful. God is giving grace to you, 
and Judah is using grace as a license for sin. He just continues on his regular path. He just keeps going with no end in sight and no stopping in sight. If you were honest with yourself, do you see a lot of yourself in Judah? Do you see some Judah in you? We all have Judah in us. We are not the hero. We are Judah. We are a lot like Judah. We are ones who easily, so easily, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And we walk away from the Lord. And we reap consequences for our sin. And God brings us back. He comforts us. And then we're right back to it again. We're so much like Judah. And we can be like Tamar as well. Tamar is not trusting the Lord. Tamar has taken providence into her own hands and tried to accomplish the birth of her sons illegitimately. You know, we're not told why Tamar didn't have a conversation with Judah about this. Assuming, I guess, it just wasn't commonplace and they probably couldn't have that conversation. But you wonder if she ever sat down with Judah and said, Hey, Judah, you know that promise you made to me about your third-born son, Sheila, coming, you know, coming and, and being a part of, uh, of you know, marrying me and us having a family together? What, what's become of that promise? Maybe she had that conversation. And maybe he said, you know, daughter, when the time is right, it will happen. But he doesn't do it. He has no intention whatsoever of doing it. And so I guess Tamar probably reaches a point where she's just absolutely frazzled. Judah's getting older here. He could die. His sons have died. What will happen if he, then I'm, then it's hopeless. There's no hope of raising up children after that. So, so she is impatient and unbelieving and she just goes for it. This is a mess. This is a mess. But you know what? This is prime time, first rate example of how God is getting ready to work. He loves to come into situations like this. See, we write people off like this, right? Any experience of this in your own life? I mean, wouldn't you write these people off? I mean, this is a messed up family. You would be interacting with them and we would be like, wait, I, I, just, I just don't think this is going to happen. This is terrible. I mean, how many times... Judah just keeps going back and back and back and back to this, and now Tamar is involved, and this is a mess. I hope you all get some help, because this isn't looking pretty. And meanwhile, all behind the scenes, God is sovereignly orchestrating this situation with all the sin and all the mess for a good outcome, for a good outcome. And like I said last week, it doesn't mean that the, the situation itself is good. The situation itself is not good. God does not endorse all the behavior, but God is using all of the behavior for a good end. It's a Romans 8.28 kind of thing going on in the chapter that God is working all things together for good. And so now we want to come to God's grace, point number three. We've seen Judah's journey. We've seen Tamar's trick. Now let's see God's grace. And it's all over these last 10 verses. So look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality 
And look at this. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. What a hypocrite. What a hypocrite. That is wickedness. That is evil. I mean, is it not the height of hypocrisy to want judgment for somebody else doing the same thing that you're doing? Is he as complicit in this pregnancy as anybody else? Yes, of course. And yet he's calling for, according to the law of God, this adulterer to be burned. Meanwhile, he deserves to be burned as well. But God is working and getting ready to bring conviction. So notice we're in the midst of a crisis. This is where God's at work. The crisis is forming. The clouds are forming. The crisis is on the scene. Here's where grace breaks in. Grace breaks through crisis. Crisis is a gift of God. When you experience crisis, crises, those are opportunities for God's grace to break in. That's why I've called this sermon Broken Breakthrough. And we'll see another reason I call it a breakthrough here in a minute. But it's a crisis. They're dealing with a crisis. Verse 24. Now verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. That's some courage. That's some courage on the part of Tamar coming out. And then verse 26, here we see the confession of Judah. Then Judah identified them and said, she's more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again, meaning they had no more sex. Now what happens here, this is interesting. He says to her, she's, she's, she's clearly better than I am. I mean, she's, I've been deceiving the whole time. I've been, and Tamar did some deception too, no doubt about it. And Judah did some deception. But Judah is now, for once in his life, at least in this chapter, thinking about somebody other than Judah. And he begins to recognize that he's the ungodly one. This is what grace does. When grace, when God's grace comes into our life, we stop thinking everybody else is the sinner, and we start thinking that we're the sinner. That's what grace does. So you want to know, is God's grace at work in my life? Well, how much are you the biggest problem you have? Or is how much everybody else the biggest problem you have? Because if everybody else is your own biggest problem, you don't have God's grace working in your life. But if you're your biggest problem then that's good. If we feel ourselves to be the most ungodly person we know, that it's our fault, it's what we've done, even if we contributed 5% to a problem, we own our 5% and see it as 50%, sometimes 100%. This is what Judah does. He says, she's more righteous than I. And then he traces his sin back to the cause, the beginning of the whole thing. He says, the reason is that I didn't give my son to her. So you see, he's getting to the root sin here. He's going all the way back to the foundation of what caused all this, is his refusal 
to give his son to his daughter-in-law, which was a sin for his father to do. It was a sin for Judah not to go to Sheila and say, you've got to marry her. You've got to marry her, God says. And he didn't do it. And as a result, all this happens, and now he owns it. He owns his sin, and he confesses what he has done. And now we begin to see God's grace climax in this story. Look at verse 27. When the time of her labor came, that is Tamar's labor, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one, this is the firstborn, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother, who no doubt had some MMA training in his womb, he said, behold, his brother comes out. So he kind of grabs him and pulls him back in, I guess, or beats him to the punch and gets out first. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself or a breakthrough. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach or breakthrough. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So Zerah's assuming to be the firstborn, but Perez will not have it and comes out first. Where do we see God's grace at work in this story. Well, we're going to look at four passages of Scripture briefly as we conclude here. Okay, I want us to turn, first of all, to a passage that Larry mentioned for us and that and I talked about a little bit earlier, and that's the book of Ruth. So would you go with me to Ruth chapter 4? Ruth chapter 4. there and just read the entirety of the chapter while I find Ruth. I had it marked and then, yeah. Okay, Ruth 4. All right, lessons for upcoming preachers. When you have a sermon text in your notes, make sure you have them in your notes. Thanks. Justin is to the rescue. All right, Ruth 4, the end. Thanks, brother. 4.18. Now these are the generations of Perez. So this is Judah's firstborn through Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. And Amenadab fathered Nishan. Nishan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So we see the, the line of Messiah is continuing through the line of Perez. Now, keep Matthew chapter 1. I promise I'll find that one. Ruth's a hard book to find, and you're trying to, I'm trying to think here while I'm sitting up here. I'm running through the books of the Bible in my mind. Matthew chapter 1, and look at verse 3. 
we'll start, well, let's just start with verse 1 of Matthew 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Look at this, verse 3. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And then it continues. So there it is. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the family of history of Jesus Christ, has this event woven into it. This event of Judah, Tamar, and Perez. What does that teach us about our Savior? That even before he came to earth, he was a friend of sinners. He's, God has been a friend of sinners. That's part of who God is. And that's why grace is greater than all of our sin. And that nothing will stop God's omnipotent purpose, even the worst human sin that we can think of or the most dysfunctional sorts of situations does not stop the grace of God from coming in and invading those situations and bringing about redemption through them. And then finally, let's look at two passages in the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. Revelation, first of all, chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then look at verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. So Jesus is identified as the lion of the tribe of Judah. This wicked man. And Jesus says, I'm the king that, come, that came from that line. And I reign over all. And then finally, the last word we have on Judah is in Revelation 21. Revelation 21, second to last chapter of the Bible. And in, let's read verses 9 through 14. Revelation 21, verses 9 through 14. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates. And at gates, at the gates, twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them was the twelve names of the twelve apostles 
of the land. Think about this. So the city of the New Jerusalem is pictured symbolically here as a great holy city, but there's also names. There's names of the 12 apostles. There's names of the 12 tribes, which were the 12 children of Israel. So Joseph's got a plaque, but guess who else has a plaque? Judah has got a plaque. What does that say? Joseph, righteous man, godly man. Judah, sinful man, unworthy man. What does that say about how you get into this city? You get into this city by grace. You get in this city by grace. Nobody gets into heaven by their good works, by their spiritual report card, none of that. We get into heaven by the mercy of the Lamb, by the, lamb, by the blood of the Lamb that was shed to forgive us and to cleanse us from all of our sin. So that means we all qualify. We all qualify. Good and bad alike, we qualify. And, and like I said several weeks ago, there is no life that we can live that is too good where we're beyond the need of God's grace. And there is no life too bad that can be lived that is beyond the reach of God's grace. We all need God's grace. And the only way we're getting in to this new Jerusalem is by the grace of God. And by the grace of God, we will get in if your hope is in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together to meditate on your grace, to see sin and all of its depravity and darkness, and yet see your grace and all of its brilliance and transcendence and radiance. We thank you for Jesus who laid his life down for the chief of sinners so that all who repent of sin and cling only and exclusively to him will find themselves on in this great city one day by grace alone. So we thank you now that we can stand and respond to you for your marvelous, matchless, infinite grace toward us. And we pray that all of us will leave refreshed in our hearts by the knowledge that our God is far greater than we are and that we would be more transformed by your grace to be a more gracious people who treat each other the way our God has treated us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.